0: last session of the conference. I I think it shows great stamina. Since since we're in Italy and approaching the 500th anniversary of the death of Leonardo da Vinci, I think this picture was an appropriate one with which to start. Um, You probably know that it's uh, Leonardo's Salvatore Mundi um, which was kind of almost miraculously re- re- rediscovered and, and, and uh, uh, restored. Um, if I if I have time at the end of the lecture, I might say a little bit more about it. <coughs> Maybe I won't. But um, I, I do think, actually, it's, it's a very... It, it, it coheres, if you study this picture, it coheres, I think, wonderfully with the Christological hymn in Colossians 1, which is going to be one of the main subject of my lecture. The theme of the Cosmic Christ, what I would like to call the universal relatedness of Jesus Christ, is one of the most remarkable aspects of the Christology of the New Testament, though Christology itself, the divine identity of the man Jesus of Nazareth, is itself such a remarkable phenomenon that perhaps we should not be too surprised to find that it includes cosmic Christology. Cosmic Christology is not confined to one strand of early Christian theological development, but is evidenced as early as 1 Corinthians and is then found in Colossians, Hebrews, the Gospel of John, and the Book of Revelation. I've selected just two of these um, for treatment this evening. Um, 1 Corinthians 8.6 and Colossians 1, 15 to 20 um, because I think I have some new things to say about these. So that's just a preview of where the lecture is going. 1 Corinthians 8.6 first. In the context of this single verse, Paul wishes to distinguish Christian faith from pagan polytheism. And so it's highly appropriate that he cites what many now recognize as a Christian version of the Shema. The Shema, the words of Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, was by this date treated as the fundamental Jewish confession Of faith in the one God. Uh, Faith in the God of Israel as the one and only true God. It was recited daily by many Jews, including surely Paul himself. It was also widely used in abbreviated forms such as God is one. Paul's Christian version is... A highly concise formula with carefully composed parallelism and no verbs, it was surely not formulated especially for this context but must have been a traditional formulation quite plausibly devised by Paul himself. Lines one and three in the four lines I've, as I have set it out Lines 1 and 3 paraphrase the Shema. Paul has taken all the words of the Shema – the Lord our God, the Lord is one – and distributed them between the Father and Jesus Christ. The Father is the one God, Jesus Christ the one Lord. This cannot mean that Jesus Christ has been added to the God confessed in the Shema for in that case the formula would be in serious conflict with the Jewish monotheism confessed in the shema rather both the one god the father and the one lord jesus christ are included within the identity of the father of the god the identity of the god confessed in the shema this is christological monotheism Now at this point I must introduce the notion of numerical composition which has an important part to play in this lecture. Recently scholars have been rather slowly becoming aware of the extent to which ancient writers, at least within the tradition of the Hebrew Bible and early Christian literature, probably elsewhere too, deployed numerical patterning and gematria to embed meaning in their literary texts. By numerical patterning, I mean the calculated allocation of specific numbers of words to sections of text. Gematria is, of course, the technique that depends on the fact that letters of the alphabet in both Hebrew and Greek can stand for numerals, and so any word can be treated as having a numerical value. You add up the numerical value of each of the letters and you've got the numerical value of the word. Now in this case, I owe to Christian, uh, to Crispin Fletcher-Louis with whom I usually disagree, but on this point I I find his observation very acute and very interesting. Um, I owe to him an observation about the numerical value of this text that confirms my explanation of it as a Christian version of the Shema, intended to express Christological monotheism. fletcher Lewis points out that each of the two parts of the text consists of 13 words, making a total of 26. He then recalls that the numerical value of the Hebrew divine name, the Tetragrammaton, is 26, a fact that would have been well known to a learned Jew such as Paul. Moreover, the numerical value of the word one in Hebrew, echad, the climactic word of the Shema, is 13. So in Paul's Christian Shema, each of the two parts, consisting of 13 words each, corresponds to the word one in the Shema, designating the one God and the one Lord, and the two parts together, consisting of 26 words, correspond to the divine name that names the divine identity of the one God of Israel. As fletcher Louis aptly puts it, the 13 plus 13 equals 26 word structure confirms all the other reasons for thinking that Jesus Christ is firmly placed inside the Shema. Within that is the identity of the one God. This highly ingenious numerical composition depends not only on the words of the Shema, as explicated in lines 1 and 3, but also on lines 2 and 4. And here I must introduce another feature of theological composition that will continue to be important for us as we move on um, from this particular text we could call this prepositional theology. Each of these two lines, lines two and four, each of the two lines refers to all things, tarpanta, and to we, hemes, in other words, Christian believers. Their relationship to God the Father and to the Lord Jesus Christ is indicated by prepositional phrases which differ all things are from the Father, ekhu, but through Jesus Christ, dihu. Doubtless, this refers to creation, and we are presumably included as creatures in the all things. But we also stand in a soteriological relationship, both to the Father and to Jesus Christ, which similarly differs. We are for the Father, ace, alton, but through Jesus Christ, de, alton. So it appears that Jesus Christ is the agent of God in both creation and redemption, whereas God the Father is both the efficient cause of creation, the one by whom everything was created, and also the final cause of creation and salvation, the goal of the redemption of believers. Behind this differentiated use of prepositions for the relationships of uh, creation to God lies what Gregory Sterling calls the prepositional metaphysics of ancient philosophy, in which Greek and Latin prepositions were used to distinguish different kinds of causation, using the term cause here um, in a broad sense, as in Aristotle's uh, definition of four types of cause but there were differences as to how precisely the various propositions should be used, especially between the Stoic and Middle Platonic schools of thought. For example, the preposition ek, which appears in our text, was said by Platonists and some Stoics to designate the material cause, that is, the matter out of which something is made. Clearly not the meaning in our text. Whereas for God as the agent by whom things were made, the appropriate preposition was thought to be hupo. And this is also what Philo of Alexandria, himself a Middle Platonist, states. Philo also agrees with some Middle Platonists who said that the preposition dia with the genitive uh, refers to the instrumental cause through which or with which something is made. And Philo casts both the logos and wisdom in this role as the instrumental cause through which God created the world. Various New Testament texts use prepositions with tapanta, or occasionally other terms referring to the universe, such as cosmos, um, to state the relationship of God and or Christ to all things, especially with reference to the act of creation. The table here shows that the usage is not consistent, just as it was not consistent in non-Christian writers. However, what is especially noteworthy in our present context is that while ek is used exclusively of God the Father's relationship to all things, dear with the genitive, often used with reference to Christ, can also be used with reference to the Father. Especially important for comparison with 1 Corinthians 8 6 is another Pauline text, Romans 11:36, 36. And here Paul is referring only to God. He says, From him and through him and to him are all things. Exautu, diautu, eisautu, tapanta. Again, a you know, compressed formulation, no verb. All three of those prepositions that refer to God and Christ in 1 Corinthians 8:6 here refer only to God. It's really important to notice that the use of precisely these three prepositions with all things occurs only in Romans 11:36 and 1 Corinthians 8:6 in the New Testament that the formula in Romans 11.36 is the traditional one that Paul has adapted for a Christological use in his Christian version of the Shema, seems to me very probable. It's probably a formula Paul derived from, Romans 11.36, that is, is probably a formula Paul derived from Hellenistic Jewish use, perhaps in synagogues, and just as in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, he divides the Shema between God and Christ, so taking this formula over into his formulation of the Shema, he also divides this formula between God and Christ, allotting two of the prepositions, ek a- and ace, to God, and one dear to Christ. So while it is not insignificant. that he he chooses dia as the preposition he applies to Christ. It does not mean that Christ is regarded as an agent of God other than God. His role in the creation of all things is contained within the identity of the one God. It's a role attributed to God himself in Romans 11.36. If Romans 11.36 contains a Jewish formula dependent on the kind of philosophical metaphysics of prepositions that I've briefly sketched, it is not surprising that it puts God in the role of the instrumental cause of all things, the preposition dia, as well as the efficient cause of the final cause. For Jewish monotheism, it was axiomatic that God was the sole creator of all things. And it was unthinkable that any being other than God himself could even assist in the work of creation. If wisdom, understood as God's own wisdom, is cast in this role of instrumental cause, as in some Jewish literature, the point is precisely that God needed no one else to assist him. His own wisdom was the only instrument he required. The inclusion of dia, along with the other two prepositions in Romans 11.36, is explicable as insistence on this very point. God was his own instrumental cause in the work of creating and sustaining all things. There was no room for some other assistance. With this background, Paul's application of dia to Christ in 1 Corinthians 8.6 while applying the other two prepositions to God the Father is entirely consistent with his inclusion of Jesus Christ within the Shema. Finally, on this this point, we should note that while the phrase, all things, tapanta, was at home in the pagan usage that we have noticed, it was also thoroughly characteristic of Jewish usage in a wide range of Second Temple period writings. It belongs to Jewish monotheistic rhetoric. Again and again, God is said to have created all things and to be the sovereign ruler over all things. This is what identified him as the one and only true God, distinguished from all other reality which was created by him and is subject to his rule. There are only God and all things. This is the binary distinction that allows for no ambiguous, semi-divine beings. So when Paul in 1 Corinthians 8.6 says that all things are from the one God, for the one God, and through the one Lord, the one Lord belongs to the same unique divine identity as the one God. So my conclusion on 1 Corinthians 8.6. has often, often been claimed that in the Pauline corpus, cosmic Christ is absent from the authentic letters of Paul and found only in the Deutero-Pauline Colossians. 1 Corinthians 8.6 has been taken to refer to Christ only as mediator of redemption. In fact, not only is Christ the agent of the creation of all things the whole cosmos in 1 Corinthians 8.6. But also he's given that role in the Christian version of the Shema as indicative of his place within the identity of the one and only God. So this is no passing reference whose importance can be played down. Paul has here made the cosmic Christ integral to a carefully formulated confession of Christian faith in God. And that means that the much fuller reflection on Jesus Christ's relationship to the whole cosmos that we will find in Colossians need not in itself throw any doubt on the Pauline authenticity of that letter. Of course, the issue of the authorship of Colossians involves other factors too, but for the purpose of the lecture I shall proceed by assuming that Paul himself probably wrote Colossians. So we turn now to the passage in Colossians that has often been called a Christ hymn. There are two literary issues that have been been very, very fully debated. The first is whether this passage is a pre-existing composition that has been incorporated into the letter. Scholars who think it is an independent hymn to Christ have often tried to recover an original text by removing the additions and adaptations supposed to have been made by the author of Colossians. Such attempts have been closely connected uh, with differing views on the way the structure of the passage should be understood. And the second issue is whether the passage can properly be called poetry. I don't want to enter into these um, issues in any great detail, I haven't time. Um, I do think the self-contained nature of the passage and its linguistically rather distinct character make it very likely that it is a pre-existing unit but one that could easily have been composed by Paul himself for use in worship settings. As to its character as poetry, it is true that it is not written in metrical verse and that therefore it is not poetry in the proper Greek sense. But I don't think that such terms as prose hymn or elevated prose really do justice to its poetic characteristics about which I'll say a little more in a moment, I shall anyway refer to it as a hymn. Now, in my view, the debate about this passage can be significantly advanced by recognising that, as in 1 Corinthians 8-6, there are important aspects of numerical composition in this passage. In fact, there are numerical features that are similar to those of some of the biblical psalms, which suggests that the author owes more to the tradition of Jewish religious poetry than to that of Greek prose hymnody, which has been suggested. Um, It is generally recognised that the hymn has two parts whose subjects are creation and new creation. What has not been noticed is that if we place the division of the two parts where the subject matter seems to require between verse 17 and verse 18, then there are precisely 55 words in each uh, of the two parts. The number is unlikely to be arbitrary, because 55 is a triangular number, a species of number which the ancients um, regarded as special. In fact, almost all the numbers above 100 that occur in the New Testament are triangular numbers. 120, 153, 276, and of course 666. Moreover, 55 is a doubly triangular number, meaning that it has a triangular root 10, and 10 is also a triangular number. It's the triangle of 4. Among the triangular numbers that appear in the New Testament, 120 and 666 are also doubly triangular but not many such numbers exist. There are only six of them up to and including 666, which simply makes it more significant that 55 is one of this rather small group. Now, whether in the structure of the Colossians passage the number 555 has any more specific significance is more difficult to say. A possibility is that as a doubly triangular number. 55 is reducible to 4, which is the number of letters in the Hebrew name of God, um, the divine name, and, of course, also the, name of, not the number of letters in the Hebrew name of Jesus, Yeshua. In any case, I think the simple facts that the passage falls into two symmetrical halves, having the same number of words, and that this division corresponds to the distinction of meaning between the two parts of the passage, um, should warn us against attempting to reconstruct a more original form of the hymn. If we look at uh, table four, which is on your handout, and here it is on the screen, we um, we shall see that the two halves are also designed in close parallelism with each other. And the key to the design, it's a little complicated, the key to the design is to recognise that there are both sequential parallels and concentric parallels. There are three words or phrases printed in red um, that, uh, sorry, the three words of phrases in the first strophe, printed in red, that recur in the same order in the second strophe. That's what I mean by sequential parallelism. But there are also three phrases printed in blue in the first strophe that recur in the opposite order, in the second strophe. Notice how the first of these, which in the first strophe appears as the heaven uh, in heaven and on earth, recurs in the last line of the second strophe in, re- in reverse order, as on, he- on earth and in heaven. All of these parallelisms of both kinds enhance the meaning of the passage since all of them are parallels between who Christ is and what he does in creation, the first strophe, and who he is and what he does in the new creation, the second strophe. In table B, we can track the repetition throughout the passage of two key terms, all and he. With reference to the whole of creation, the Greek word pas, or in the plural panta, occurs seven times. Jewish symbolic number of completeness with echoes of Genesis 1, as you may remember if you heard Gary Anderson's paper this morning. There is an eighth occurrence of the word, I've put the, um, I've put the seven in blue, and the eighth one is in, in black bold, to distinguish it. Um, that's in the phrase pantopleroma, in the second strophe, the whole fullness of deity. It's a rather obscure phrase, but it's clearly of referring to God. Thus, I think appropriately, the whole multiplicity of creation is indicated by the seven occurrences of all, while the uniqueness of the one God is indicated by the single appearance of the word with reference to deity. The other recurring word is the pronoun autos, which might seem insignificant, until we realise that in all 11 cases it refers to Jesus Christ, who is never actually named within the passage. The specific number I don't think has significance, but the fact that the word is so frequent is, I think, significant, as we'll see. Well, I think these various literary features show that the passage, as we have it, we don't have to reconstruct a more original version. The passage as we have it is a carefully composed poem. While lacking meaning, while lacking metre, it has numerical symmetry and complex parallelism, which serve to multiply and enhance meaning in the way that poetry does. Uh, We move then to my next section, which is called A Christological Reading of Genesis 1, 1 1-2, 1. Essentially, this hymn is a Christological reading of the creation account in Genesis 1, followed by a corresponding account of new creation. In this respect, it closely resembles the, the prologue to the Gospel of John, Both authors, I think, looked for the pre-existent Christ in the text of Genesis 1. For the... um, Sorry, yeah, they looked for pre-existent Christ in the text of Genesis 1. The Gospel author, the Johannine author, identified Christ with the Word Logos, that is implicit in the Genesis account of God speaking, although the, the word logos, of course, is not used, but the notion of God speaking is, is the key to the whole passage. The author of our hymn in Colossians identified two words in Genesis 1 as references to Christ. These are arche, the beginning, used, of course, at the very beginning of Genesis 1. And the word icon, the image, uh, used twice in verses 26 to 27 of Genesis 1. Now, our author has actually placed "arche" not where we might have expected it in the first strophe. The Gospel of John, of course, has it right at the beginning, just like Genesis. But here it is not in the first strophe, it's in the second strophe, because the author is creating a parallel between the beginning of creation and the beginning of new creation. By taking the word archae from the opening phrase of Genesis and using it to refer to the risen Christ as the beginning of the new creation, the author has tied the two strophes closely together. The two Christological terms from Genesis 1 arche and icon, are highlighted as key terms um, and placed in parallel by means of the um, two parallel relative clauses, pos estin, pos estin icon, pos estin arche. Sometimes the term icon, used in the genesis account of the creation of humanity, has been taken in Colossians to indicate a second Adam Christology. But the fact that it occurs at the beginning of the first trophy, not the second, shows, I think, that this is not the case. It is not in his humanity, but in his pre-existence, that Christ is the image of the invisible God. The author, I think, is reading the phrase according to the image of God, in Genesis 1.27, in the way that Philo did when he identified the image of God as the Logos. The first humans were not themselves the image of God, but created according to the image of God, that is, on the model of the eternally existent divine image, who is the image of God in the sense of being an exact copy of God a notion we also get in slightly different terms at the beginning of Hebrews. Philo also provides kind of precedent for the understanding of Arche in Genesis 1.1 as a sort of title for the pre-existent Christ. Philo, who applies it as a title to the Philo applies it as a title to the Logos. And we don't, I think, need to appeal to eight to, to, to Proverbs 8:22 where the term applies to wisdom. Reference to Genesis 1.1 explains more of the text of Colossians than Proverbs 8.22 could, because this reading of the Genesis text, which says that God created en-arche, explains the unusual use of that preposition with reference to Christ in the Colossians hymn. All things were created in him. En alto, verse 16. As in the case of the prologue to John, it is routinely claimed that the Colossians hymn embodies a wisdom Christology. But in neither case do I think the text really warrants that. The alleged wisdom features are mostly explicable from Genesis 1, to which both texts unmistakably allude And even if there were some secondary allusions to wisdom texts there seems to me scant basis for supposing that readers would have read either the prologue to John or the Colossians hymn as identifying Christ with a figure of wisdom that they knew from Jewish literature. What the Colossians hymn manifestly does is to identify Christ with the beginning and the image of God of which Genesis 1 speaks. As well as the two key Christological terms, there are important parallels between the way the hymn and Genesis 1 speak of creation. We've noticed the sevenfold repetition of or Panta in Colossians, and the word is also exceptionally frequent in Genesis 1. Genesis 1 also uses the phrase the heavens and the earth an inclusive term of course for all that God created at both the beginning and the end of its account of creation forming a literary inclusion in Colossians the first use of the phrase echoes Genesis 1-1 in him were created all things in heaven and on earth while the second concludes the hymn, forming an inclusio around the whole work of creation and new creation. Finally, the phrase the visible things and the invisible things in Colossians may reflect the Platonizing interpretation of Genesis found in Philo and some other uh, texts. I think also which allocates the creation of the invisible world, the intelligible world, to to day one, and the creation of the visible world to days two to six of creation. Comparing the hymn with Genesis 1 is one way of appreciating the immense Christological concentration of the hymn. Throughout Genesis 1, God is the subject of verbs of creation. In Colossians 1, the God who is called invisible in the first phrase is literally invisible throughout the rest of the first strophe, where the verbs of creation are all passive. All things were created implicitly by God, but explicitly in, through and for Jesus Christ. Again, this resembles the beginning of the prologue to John. So, the um, next section is called Prepositions and Christological Monotheism. The hymn's Christological concentration is also apparent in the prepositional phrases with tapanta. Unlike 1 Corinthians 8-6 all of them refer to Christ none to God if we look again at the pattern of usage throughout the New Testament we can see that Colossians is unique in using the preposition n in these phrases and also unique in using ace with reference to Christ rather than to God. The use of N is usually said to reflect a Stoic theology in which the world is understood to be spatially surrounded by God. But as we've seen, I think it is more plausibly a literal echo of Genesis 1.1, not expressing any particular metaphysic. The meaning may not be much different from DIA, but it enhances the emphasis on Christ's agency in creation, while ace serves to include him more extensively in God's relationship to the world. But ek is not used. The divine passive shows that the source or efficient cause of creation is God the Father, and this pattern is also maintained in the parallel statement about reconciliation in the second strophe. The pleroma is the subject who reconciles all things through Christ and to or for Christ. This is Christological monotheism. Christ, pre-existent and incarnate, participates in the uniquely divine activities of creating all things and reconciling all things. I think that that an attempt to further underline the inclusion of Christ in the divine identity is also the reason um, for the extended catalogue of the heavenly powers in verse 16. Um, You remember that... um, we get the phrase heaven and earth, but then it's spelt out as the visible and invisible things, and then we get this catalogue of heavenly powers, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All of them, I take it, included in the invisible things, They're instances of the invisible things, but why mention them at such length? The point is, I think, that even over these exalted heavenly powers the pre-existent Christ has priority as the firstborn, the prototokos, and they were created through him. Unlike them, he belongs on the divine side of the monotheistic distinction between creator and creation. This reference to the powers is parallel to the insistence in Jewish literature that all the host of heaven created by the one God, Nehemiah 9.6, and therefore should not be treated as gods. In my view, the same point is intended by the distinction drawn so sharply between Christ and the angels in the first chapter of Hebrews. So I think the extended reference to the powers in the Colossians hymn does not in the context of the hymn itself relates specifically to the issues in the Church of Colossae that the uh, the letter develops um, with reference back to the hymn as the rest of the letter continues. In other words, the reference to the powers is not put there for that specific Colossians context purpose, but it is taken up and applied to that um, Colossians specific purpose. The list of the powers itself, I think, coheres very well with the theme of the hymn as such, the intense Christological monotheism of it. So, what do do our two texts, finally, what do they mean for theology? And I conclude with um, a series of three reflections. Which refer especially to the, the Colossians hymn, but also to 1 Corinthians 8 6 to some extent. Um, first, I've identified Christological monotheism as a key characteristic of these two texts, meaning an understanding of biblical monotheism as incorporating Jesus Christ unequivocally within the identity of the one God. And, of course, that's a theme I've written about at great length elsewhere. I shall leave it at that here. I think you've seen it it, uh, very extensively in these two texts. Secondly, how should we envisage the pre-existence of Christ according to these texts? Some, such as Jimmy Dunn, take the meaning to be that God's action in Jesus Christ belongs to the same divine purpose as was expressed also in creation, and that the same divine qualities of love and sacrifice were embodied in both. This view depends very much on the claim that the Jewish figure of wisdom, personification of the divine wisdom, lies behind the cosmic Christology of these texts. And that, moreover, that that would have been evident to early readers of these texts. I think that even if there are allusions to Jewish wisdom texts, they do not justify calling the Christology of these texts wisdom Christology, and denying, uh, therefore, that they attribute personal pre-existence to Jesus Christ. If we take the form of the Colossians' hymn seriously, it's eleven-fold repetition of the pronoun autos, Strongly asserts, surely, personal continuity between the agent of creation and the incarnate agent of new creation. This is among the New Testament texts seem to require something like the doctrine of the hypostatic union, as the fathers later developed it. Dunn and others shy away from this because they do not see how the man Jesus can be regarded as preexistent, and they do not see the relationship of father to son as a relationship internal to God's own identity. Now, there are clear problems in envisaging a continuity of divine subject between the eternal son and the man Jesus, but it is the text that posed these problems for us trying to read the text as implying something other than personal preexistence i think is not the solution and thirdly if the elevenfold autos of the hymn requires us to think of the personal preexistence of christ the sevenfold Pass panta requires a fully cosmic christology in which christ is related to the whole of god's creation without diminishing the the particularity of the man Jesus in his human historical identity. We are required to understand his significance in relation to all things, breaking out of the anthropological restriction characteristic of much modern theology. Indeed, humans as such do not appear in the Colossians hymn other than in the important reference to the Church, which I haven't had time to talk about, but it is important. In both creation and redemption, humans are implicitly envisaged only in our solidarity with all things. In the current ecological age, we may be overcoming the anthropological restriction of modern theology by appreciating once more the integrity of the non-human world as God's creation. But we probably still have far to go in in appreciating the universal scope of Christology and redemption. In the Colossians hymn, the scope of reconciliation is emphatically as wide as the scope of creation. Through the blood of his cross, Christ made peace in the whole creation i 'll just give you a couple of comments on, on, on this it's a wonderful painting someone who an um, art critic who reviewed the exhibition in London in two thousand and eleven where this was first exhibited and um, which includes uh, quite a few of leonardo 's other religious paintings, um, he said that perhaps this is the only one where we where we see quite simply leonardo 's own faith it 's very interesting because. Of Leonardo, what, what Leonardo talks about you know what, what he what he what he really catches on to in the Christian religion is the creation of the cosmos with all its um, uh, all, all its complexity and stuff that you know Leonardo was uh, incredibly uh, enamored of so the cosmic Christ really um, uh, appeals um, and Notice that he's holding in his left hand. It's, it's a traditional iconic, iconic image. But Leonardo has done some things with it. In his left hand, he holds not the Earth, but the whole cosmos. You can see that because it's transparent. Um, um, Martin Kemp thinks that it, Leonardo is depicting um, rock crystal, which he talks about. But anyway, it's transparent. It's the whole cosmos. And I quite like the, the sense that it's perhaps rather fragile and Christ is holding it rather carefully and, uh, and, uh, 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 and solicitously. While in, in the other hand, he blesses the cosmos, which is what God does <coughs> time after time in Genesis 1. Um, and I, I, have, I don't know too much about the... History of this symbol of a blessing, but it, the crossed fingers don't they suggest the cross is having something to do with the cosmic Christ's role? Anyway, that's why I rather like that picture.
1: Thank you very much. Uh
0: I really wasn't. I, I, I was trying not to define it, because I think, in a way, it simply reflects the beginning of Genesis, and it could be it, it could be parallel to uh, Dea, or you know, not much different from D. I I wonder if the precise meaning of the N matters very much to the author, rather than the echo of Genesis, and you know, just giving all the prepositions of reference to Christ.
1: Yeah, the only comment I right, think right there is he does use the uh, several times. And he does use and the in the local in two cases. In what, yeah, sorry. In two cases. And passing uh, for and Yes,
0: yes. yes, yes, you're quite right. Um I I I mean I'm not I'm not sure about this. You you, you may be right. <laughs> no, I'm not sure about this. well that's, that's I, th- I, think it's, I think it's genuinely ambiguous in Philo, and that's where Philo is more Middle Platonic <laughs> than he is Jewish. <laughs>
1: um,
0: I, I mean, you, you never get that ambiguity in any other Jewish text. It, it's, it's peculiar to Philo, and I think it is where the Middle Platonism has, has, has influenced him. And
1: one thing just to simply undercurrent some of the things you were saying, Jesus' divinity, one of the ways that it is, it's most clearly expressed is thats both um, theses and kinetic theses, which is resurrection, are both divine transcendent functions that distinguish <coughs> the God of Israel from all of the gods. Mm-hmm. Which is clearly, clearly
0: Yes, 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 absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Thank you. <coughs> Thank you for your talk. I'm um, just looking at the text and kind of Areas where there is no, um, there isn't a parallel that you've uh, highlighted in any way. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about how you, you talk about instrument of causality in different ways, the prepositions, you by causality. I noticed the, the blood of this cross is one of the in a way, instrument of the new creation. Um, and I don't know if you would see that as being parallel in any way,
0: I mean, I, I, it seems to me the Jewish texts really are very concerned to exclude angels from, from assistance in creation. They, 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 they say, you know, it, it is just God. Um, so, I, 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 well, if you like, you know, that, that, this is an instance of it, you're making, making clear that the angelic powers are created. Um, there are a few other bits of uh, bits of parallelism. I, I mean, the, the two... Um, uh, sections, the the last bit of the first strophe, the first bit of the second strophe, which I've set in, because they they are sort of um, um, concentric parallelism. Um, And I think what holds them together, in a sense, is a parallel between um, the, the, the Christ of creation holding the body of the universe together and the Christ who is head of the body, the church. Um, It's not, the the parallel is not explicit verbally, that's why I didn't um, highlight it, but I I think there's probably something to do, something there between holding all things together in the cosmos and holding his body, the church, together in, in new creation.